Okay, so good afternoon, everybody. <laughs> okay, and now we continue with the examination of the Mahamangala Sutta, and we are still in the section on that I give the title to Cultivating Inner Virtues and Wisdom. And so now we proceed to verse number nine. Okay, so again I'll recite and then you can repeat after me. Kantija so vachasata Samana nancha dasanam Kalena Dhamma Sakacha Etang Mangalamutamang. Okay, so Kanti means patience. Sovachasata is being amenable to advice. Samanancha, this means renunciance or ascetics. And Dasanang is the sight of, the seeing of. So this is the seeing of renunciance. Kalena means in good time, at the proper time. And Dhammasakacha is discussion on the Dhamma. And so it's said that this is the highest blessing. Okay, so yesterday I remember somebody in the question period asked me, whether there are any other methods of developing kanti of patience. And I told them, you'll have to be patient till tomorrow. <laughs> and so now we've come to that moment. Okay, so I mentioned yesterday that one of the antidotes to anger and ill will, to a kind of volatile temperament, is to make a daily resolution that no matter how badly I might be provoked, no matter what the circumstances might be, I will remain patient. So this is one method to be used. But I'd say that there are two main methods in dealing with patience. Okay, one is let me call the two methods reflection and development or cultivation. They're not completely separable, but there's a little difference in emphasis. What's meant by reflection is reflecting on the one hand about the dangers and disadvantages in anger. So if one repeatedly reflects on the dangers in anger, the difficulties that anger can lead to, the way it creates so many obstacles for one in one's everyday life, how it can destroy beautiful relationships, how it can cause loss of one's standing in the community, trouble in the workplace, it brings criticism and blame from others and other people when they know that you're angry, 
they want to keep a distance from you. And when you get habitually and repeatedly ang- angry, you know, when you get angry on one occasion, it shows in one's face. You know, when you're having a peaceful conversation with somebody, then there's a disagreement, and then the other person gets angry. You could see it in their face. But if the person is repeatedly angry, those, that muscular stress beca- begins to sort of fasten itself and fix itself into the face so that the person develops a rather perpetual angry visage in their face. So a person comes into a room and everybody gets sort of shaken up by that person. <laughs> so these are, when you reflect on this way, you can see some of the disadvantages in anger. And then re- as the converse of that, you can reflect on the benefits, the blessings of patience. Like when you're patient, then it contributes to friendly and harmonious relations with others. When you're, friendly, when you're patient, other people come to like you. When you're patient, you can think clearly under stressful and difficult conditions. And so these are some of the lines of reflection that one can use to develop patience. And in fact, I had collected a number of texts exactly on this theme. So here, the Buddha says that there are these five dangers in anger. What five? One is displeasing and disagreeable to people. One has many enemies, or even if you don't get many enemies, but at least you'll pick up a few enemies. (laughs) One has many faults. As I said, you can't think clearly, you act rashly, sometimes violently, you destroy things to releasing your anger. And it, um, what's not mentioned here, but what I would add, it also creates health problems. I guess high blood pressure, um, muscular stress in the nervous system. And if one gets too much angry, too angry too often and too forcefully, perhaps it could even cause one to lose one's sanity. And then when, when death comes, one dies confused. And then if anger becomes the determining karmic force at the time of death, it will lead to a rebirth in one of the realms, the bad destinations. So those are the five dangers in anger. And then the converse, you reflect on the five benefits. So one is pleasing and agreeable to many people. I put this a little more positively. One gains friends when one has a friendly, loving demeanor. People spontaneously become attracted to you. Um, One does not have many faults. Let's put this more positively. Being patient and tolerant helps one to develop other virtues. It's actually patience is like a tributary that feeds into qualities like respect, some of the qualities mentioned earlier, respect for others, humility, contentment. And if one, may, if one has patience, then when the time of death, one can remain calm and patient in facing 
things like oppressive pains in the body. And so then when death sets in, one could die with a clear mind. And then if that patience becomes the determining karmic factor at the time of death, it will lead to rebirth in a good destination, even into the heavenly world. So reflections along these lines, this is the power of reflection that would that can help one to remain patient. And then the other main method is the method of development. So this is what is meant here is meditative cultivation. And so here the Buddha is explaining five ways of removing resentment or anger by which you can entirely remove anger when it has arisen towards someone. So the five are, somebody say is provocative and spiteful towards you, you can develop loving kindness towards that person. Or what I should say actually to make this a little fuller, if one regularly practices the meditation on loving kindness, so that becomes a habitual practice then you're building up what I would call the force or the power of loving kindness in the mind. You know, you're developing it in the systematic way and in a general way. So then when you encounter somebody who is particularly aggressive and belligerent towards yourself, somebody who makes trouble towards, yourself, towards you, then you can draw upon that power of loving kindness and direct it specifically to that person. I mean, if you haven't practiced loving kindness before and you don't have that muscular force of loving kindness in the mind and then somebody provokes you, it's very difficult right on the spot to bring up, to start developing loving kindness. But when you have repeated practice, then it's a kind of source of strength that you could draw upon and direct towards the provocative person. So loving kindness, the specific modality or quality of loving-kindness is wishing for the well-being and happiness of that person. So somebody is speaking in nasty ways to you, so instead of reacting immediately, you just pause and then you generate in your heart the wish, may this person be well, may they be happy, may they be well, may they be happy. Even if you could do this just before acting, just for 20 seconds you bring that up, then you speak to the person, you say, calm down, calm down, let's discuss this matter peacefully, no need to get upset over it, and then you can stop that tense situation from exploding into unpleasant confrontation. And because you're secretly directing loving kindness towards that person, it's sort of going, what we call the good vibrations are going to make an impact on that person's mind and heart so that they'll soften and relax. Okay, the second method that's given here is to develop compassion for this person. So, you know, loving kindness is wishing for the well-being and happiness of the other, but you know that the person who is somewhat malicious character, somebody who gets angry with others, who is provocative, that that person is acting in that way because there's 
deep disturbances in the mind which are sources of suffering for them. So instead of simply wishing for the person to be well and happy, in this case you think this person is really creating suffering, has, is really experiencing suffering for themselves, and they're creating a lot of suffering for others, they're creating antagonism in others, so I should really feel compassion for that person. So you think of the suffering that's motivating that person to act in that way, and then you direct that compassion, sort of radiate that compassion towards them, wishing, may this person be free from that oppressive suffering. And then in this way, you develop goodwill towards that person. See, the third and the fourth actually seem rather similar. So the third is develop equanimity towards the person one resents. So this is, you know, if somebody is continuously um, provoking you with harsh, angry words, so (laughs) you can reflect. Well, if you've practiced the meditation on equanimity, then you could direct towards that person the thought of neither special preference towards that person and no resentment towards that person, but just look at this person. You could consider this person is a collection of five aggregates in which there's now a particular sankhara or mental formation arisen in their mind. That mental formation is one of anger. It's foolish to get angry with what with their bodily form because the bodily form isn't doing anything you don't get angry with their fail- feelings because their feelings are just states of pleasure and pain or neutral feeling you don't get angry with their perceptions you don't get angry with their consciousness because the consciousness is just awareness and then the fourth aggregate is just this bundle of ever changing impermanent mental formations So now a mental formation of anger has arisen, but no point to get angry with just a momentary mental factor of anger that's arising, passing, arising, passing. And so in that way you can maintain equanimity towards that person. And then the next method, it seems a little similar to the third, and that is to disregard the person one resents and pay no attention to that person. And then the fifth method is called applying the idea of what's called the ownership of karma to the person one resents. So one's tried all of the other methods, and one hasn't been able to subdue that person's anger, to reconcile oneself to that person, and the person is still trying to provoke you. So you just think we each have to receive the results of our own karma. This person is creating negative karma by acting in angry and provocative ways. They're going to get the result of their karma. Let me remain 
peaceful and friendly, and then I'll be generating wholesome karma and I'll get the result of that karma. So this is, these are some methods that come through development. And then there's another method, which I don't think I have noted here, but this is through the practice of, the regular practice of satipatthana or mindfulness, particularly the third foundation of mindfulness, contemplation of the mind. Because when one has practiced observation of the mind, then one gets to know one's own states of mind. And so when diff- and you know, as we're sitting in meditation, different states of mind arise, sometimes states of craving, sometimes anger, sometimes um, ill will will arise. And we just, because we're just sitting and doing meditation, then when that state arises, we know, ah, now a state of desire has arisen, now a state of drowsiness, now a state of anger. And so we become familiar with the workings of our mind and we know how to observe the mind without feeling compelled to act as soon as a mental state arises. So now when one gets into a tense and difficult situation, then anger starts to arise, but instead of immediately getting ignited and triggered by that anger to act in aggressive ways, one just makes the mental note, a state of anger has arisen in me. One could turn the mind away from the angry thought, maybe to the posture of the body, or turn it to the breath, you know, just observing in and out breathing for a few turns, or just observe the mind itself. Watch, okay, this is an angry state, very interesting, its effect on the mind. <laughs> but it doesn't have to become a motivation for action. Okay, here's another sutta in which the Buddha whoops, is instructing the monks how to act under provocative situations. So he says, Others may speak to you in various ways. The speech might be timely or untimely, rough or gentle, kind or hateful. So in all these cases, you should train yourselves thus. Our mind will remain undisturbed and we shall utter no evil words. Sort of the first step is put a break on that spontaneous impulse to break out into angry speech. And then instead, one... In this case, one first arouses compassion for the angry person, then a mind of loving kindness without hate, and then one pervades that person with a mind of loving kindness and then expands the loving kindness until it pervades the whole world. And then the Buddha brings in the famous simile of the two-handled saw. I mean, this is a little difficult for even for those of us who consider ourselves veterans, (laughs) even if bandits were to sever you savagely limb by limb with a two-handled saw, one who gave rise to a mind of hate towards them would not be carrying out my teaching. Now, 
Now, what I've been speaking about so far is anger or patience in regard to other people that make us angry. But there are some other aspects of patience that we have to take account of. One is patience under difficult conditions. Here there's no other person to direct the anger towards, but could be that the weather is disagreeable to us, the food that we're given is disagreeable to us, there might be sitting trying to meditate, mosquitoes come and start biting, there's a lot of heavy traffic outside, trucks and motorcycles going by, and we're thinking, wow, if only those mosquitoes would stop biting, I'd really be able to meditate well. If only the cars would stop rolling down the road, I'd really be able to get into the fourth jhana. (laughs) If the dogs would stop barking, I'd be able to meditate well. Let me tell you a little funny story. (laughs) This is 1972. This was when I was living in Los Angeles before I went to Sri Lanka to become a monk. And I would be meditating in my room. And on the other side of, there was like an alley separating the house I was living in and the other house. On the other side of the alley, there was a house with a dog that was always barking. Woof, woof, woof disturbing my meditation. (laughs) And I thought, wow, when I get, I was already planning to go to Sri Lanka, when I get to Sri Lanka, it's going to be the countryside, so peaceful, so quiet. (laughs) Okay, so finally, make the big trip, I'm in Sri Lanka, I wind up at the temple where I'm going to spend my first few years as a monk, and it's the day I arrive there, the evening, I'm in my the cottage, sit down to meditate, and it's just so wonderful, so quiet and peaceful. And then comes what <laughs> Okay. It's just one bark, it's not going to continue. <laughs> Now it's quiet again. <laughs> About 30 seconds later, woof, woof. <laughs> and then one starts here, <laughs> then here comes woof, woof. There, woof, woof. There, woof, woof. Until within two minutes after I'm meditating, the whole outside is just a source of uninterrupted whoops, whoops. <laughs> and then I'm thinking, I'm going back to America. <laughs> I've been cheated. <laughs> but then I learned how to, you know, just treat this as sound, sound, sound. <laughs> you know, when I was actually in Los Angeles at that house, I actually, when the dog was barking, went outside, 
thinking, I'm going to go to the owners of that house and ask him, <laughs> I'm meditating between 7 and 8 p.m. Could you please muzzle your dog? <laughs> And I went out, and I thought, I'd make a fool of myself if I would do that. But now here I am in Sri Lanka, what am I going to do? Get a loudspeaker in the village (laughs) and tell everybody, you have to muzzle your dogs. (laughs) Okay, so one thing is difficult conditions. So for that, one needs what I would call steadfastness and fortitude to deal with the difficulties. And you could also reflect, and this is what helped me as well. It was actually a piece of advice that my first teacher used to give me. He used to say, if there were no difficulties, there would be no progress on the path. So think whatever difficulties one meets in one's personal life, in the outer conditions, circumstances, all of these difficulties are, in a sense, aids to enlightenment because they're helping us face our inner sort of chelases or defilements, reflecting them back to us and helping us to deal with them. And so in this way, you turn the difficulties into aids on the path. Okay, then, so we have patience in regard to people, patience in regard to outer conditions, then the third aspect of patience is patience in the practice, that is, in the practice of the Dhamma. So, you know, sometimes, like, if you read the suttas, you see this monk sits down under the tree, crosses his legs, and zoom, the five hindrances are gone, he's into the four jhanas, then from there he's reaching the asavakaya, the destruction of the defilements. And it seems like all of this is taking place within one sitting or a few weeks of practice. But we have to remember like this is a long journey that we've embarked on. And we bring a lot of baggage with us into the practice. And so one always has to remain patient, not bearing down on oneself and always judging oneself and criticizing oneself harshly, but just have confidence in the path and the practice and confidence and trust that as long as we have this confidence and trust, eventually we can do it. Like if we think of, say, the great disciples of the Buddha, Sariputta, Moggallana, Ananda, Upalavanna, Kema, all of them, they didn't just start out already fully equipped with the faculties to reach our hardship. But you go back thousands of lives, they were like ordinary people who met the Dharma, started to practice, struggled with their own problems. But through persistence, patience, diligence, they reached the supreme goal. And so we have to be patient with ourselves. Would you turn that thing off?
It's a. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. Now. Okay. Maybe we can bring in this little story. Yeah. The, do you know the story of Saka and the anger-eating demon? Okay, Saka is the king of the gods and the Tava Tingsa, the heaven of the 33. So in the story, one time it said that a certain ugly demon sat down on Saka's seat while Saka was on a trip someplace. Then the devas grumbled and complained about it and saying, how can this demon sit down on Saka's seat? But when the devas started to grumble and complain, the demon became larger and larger and more and more powerful. <clears throat> okay, then the devas came and told Saka, and then Saka realized that's the anger-eating demon. And so Saka approached the demon, and he politely and respectfully bowed down in front of the demon, and he announced his name. This is a way, sort of, sort of like politely welcoming the demon, saying, I am Saka, ruler of the gods. I am Saka, ruler of the gods. And then as Saka continued to announce his name, then that demon grew smaller and smaller until he disappeared right there. So this is a kind of par a parable for the way to eliminate anger, not to sort of oppose it and fight against it, but look into it and welcome it as a way of transforming it. Okay, we'll move on now to the next one, which is called, in Pali, the Pali word is sovachasata, which comes from Okay, su, the prefix su, which means something like good or well, and vacha means speech. And so, if one doesn't know the way words are used idiomatically in Pali, and one just looks at suvacha, you might think it means somebody who is a good speaker, who speaks well. But that's not the actual meaning and usage. The meaning and usage of suvacha is one who is easy to speak to in the sense of being easy to correct, easy to give advice to, easy to admonish. And this goes, seems to be a quality that goes very closely with patience. Because when we're practicing the Dharma, sometimes somebody might be misbehaving or doing things which are detrimental to the well-being of the group in any community of practitioners. There'll be people like that. And so if we just let that person continue to behave in the way in which they've been behaving, it's going to create more disruption, more trouble, more difficulties for themselves and everybody else. 
So it becomes then necessary for somebody in the position of a teacher or a senior practitioner to advise that person, to admonish the person, to advise them to change their behavior. And for this relationship to work, well, there are two possibilities, let's say, when this happens, there are two possibilities. One is that the person becomes dubacha. This is from the prefix dur plus vacha. Dur has a sense of bad, like we have dukkha is also, which we translate suffering, is from dur plus ka. In this case, it's dur plus vacha. And because of the polyphonology, the RV combination turns into a double B, just like with nirvana becomes nibbana. So dubacha means somebody who's difficult to speak to. So when we try to advise the person, to give them, to correct them, the person turns against us and says, who are you to be advising me? Are you so great? You're, per- you're not perfect. So why should you be giving me advice? People who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. And so the opposite of that is the person who is easy to speak to, the one who accepts advice and says, thank you, I didn't realize I was acting in that way. Oh, I really appreciate it. I'll try to correct my ways in the future. And if you ever see me acting in rough or disruptive ways, just don't have any hesitation to give me advice. I have some notes here. Okay, so suvacha, just let me finish the grammatical part. So when we turn this, suvacha, this is the adjective. So a person who is easy to advise is said to be suvacha. Then the abstract noun that we have here, sovacha sata. Well, this is the abstract noun, being amenable to advice, the quality of being easy to advise or to correct. And then this quality of sovacha is I see it as a combination of three other qualities that enter into it. One is patience, because one accepts the advice without getting angry. Humility, because one is willing to recognize one's shortcomings and mistakes and gratitude, because one accepts the advice with thanks, thankfulness towards the person that corrects one. And it also implies a genuine willingness to learn, that you recognize I'm not perfect, there are many things to learn, I still have faults, and these faults have to be rectified. Then I have some notes on characteristics of the person who is easy to speak to. They don't rebuke the person who gives them advice in some of the ways that I just mentioned. They don't turn a cold shoulder to the person that gives them advice, and I'm not going to talk to that person again. And they don't make excuses when they're wrong. 
you know, trying to justify and say, well, I saw that one acting in that way, so I thought I would imitate them. And then they are grateful to the person who advises them and they express their appreciation. And as a text, I collected some text to illustrate this. Okay, here this is, I think it's Matyumanikaya Sutta number 15. So here a monk says, let the venerable ones correct me. I want to be corrected by the venerable ones. Yet if he is difficult to correct, do bacho, and has qualities that make him difficult to correct. If he's impatient and does not take instruction rightly, then his fellow monks think he should not be corrected or instructed and they think he's a person not to be trusted, then what are the qualities, some qualities that make him difficult to correct? I think I just took a selection here. He has evil desires. He's one who praises himself and disparages others. He is angry and overcome by anger. He is angry and resentful, angry and stubborn. Um... And then he's one who adheres to his own views, holds to them tenaciously, and relinquishes them with difficulty. And then the opposite of that, those are the qualities that make one easy to correct. One doesn't have evil desires, desire for praise, fame, status. One doesn't praise oneself and disparage others. One is able to control one's anger and so on and one doesn't adhere to one's own views and hold to them tenaciously. Okay, then the next blessing or mangala in this series is the seeing of renunciance of ascetics. Of course, with the Buddha speaking, it's probably referring to the Buddhist monastics. And so what's interesting, in the India of the Buddhist time, in many of the other sort of rival spiritual communities, their practices, some were to go naked or just to wear loincloths and to let the hair grow into these long matted locks to grow the beard, and even to grow the long fingernails without never cutting them, to do the long fasting that the body would get very thin. And so the people become unsightly in, when they come into society. But the Buddha was insistent. He wanted the monastics to inspire trust and confidence in the people in the wider society. So he has them wear you know, robes. You know, the robes don't not supposed to be beautiful or ornamental, and but it's just dyed the color of the bark or leaves. So you get a brown or orange brown ro- uh, robes, and always to be neatly dressed, and to shave the beard and the hair, and so and then especially, of course, the monks and nuns are trained in mindfulness. And so the manner of the Buddhist ascetic, the Buddhist monastic, 
should display the quality of mindfulness that's said in the text. There's a kind of stock formula when going towards the village and returning, when looking up and looking around, when bending and stretching the limbs, when going on arms round. The monastic is one who inspires trust and confidence. And so for this reason, in like traditional Buddhist cultures, when people see these well-trained, well monastics who have practiced well, you know, with radiant features, joyful features, then it brings an upsurge of joy and happiness in themselves. I mean, I had this experience even when I was in graduate school when I would meet with Buddhist monastics occasionally, and then when I went to Sri Lanka when I first met some really good accomplished monks. And it doesn't mean that everybody in the monastic order is of excellent behavior, but when you see really good ones, then it brings a kind of joy and happiness in the mind. So that is why seeing of ascetics or monastics is a source of joy or a blessing. And actually the word here, the Pali word dasana, this is like the, the Sanskrit equivalent of this is dashana, which gets shortened in hin, modern Hindi to dashan. So in India it's still the practice, the religious practice to go to see famous swamis and gurus to get dashan of them. Just to see them it's considered a source of merit and blessing. Though the Buddha doesn't, in Buddhism, we don't emphasize the idea of just going to gaze up at the great teacher and take, taking that as sufficient. But seeing becomes the first step to be followed by, after seeing a qualified samana or ascetic, then one should approach to ask questions, to listen to the Dharma, then to investigate the Dharma, and to provide when opportunity comes to provide services to the ascetic, to the monastics. Okay, and then the last blessing in this verse is Kalena Dhammasakacha. In the previous verse, in this place, we had Kalena Dhammasavanang. In that role, listening to the Dhamma at the proper time, then one is in a somewhat passive role because the other person, the teacher is speaking and you're listening, listening, but listening attentively, trying to retain what one has heard. But here one has become, one becomes a participant in discussing the Dhamma. And this is a blessing because it helps one not simply to learn the Dhamma from others, but it gives one the opportunity to express one's own understanding of the Dhamma and then to get feedback from others. And so in this way, one could like look at a single, same principle of the Dhamma, one single principle, or say one single textual passage, and if a group of people meet and discuss this, then you get that same passage reflected back 
from multiple points of view. And so this one helps one to expand one's own understanding by hearing how other people see that passage, to express one's understanding, and in that way to get feedback from others when they comment on one's interpretation. And this helps one to increase, expand, and consolidate one's own knowledge and understanding. So in this way, discussion on the Dhamma um, becomes a means for developing wisdom. And some of the benefits that I have here is that holding discussions on the Dhamma leads to an increase in one's knowledge of the Dhamma. It gives one a chance to consolidate what one already knows by exchanging views with others. One can sharpen and fine-tune one's knowledge and see other implications of the same text or idea. And it clears up one's doubts about the teaching and helps one to understand more clearly the right way of practice. So that takes us through verse 9. Now we're going to come into a new dimension in the unfolding of the Mangala Sutta. So what we've covered in the verses from this morning right up to the present, So he had personal ethics, that is building up a life of moral integrity through stopping evil and being heedful in wholesome practices. Then developing a spiritual life by cultivating inner virtues and wisdom. This, we could say, is all part of what pertains to the stage of preparation, preparing oneself cultivating the groundwork, building up the inner qualities and capacities of the mind for intensive practice. But now with this verse, verse 10, we're now going to start what I call the ascent towards realization. So let us take the Pali verse. Tapocha Brahmacharyancha Arya Sachana Dasanang Nibbana Sachi Kiriacha Etang Mangalamutamang Okay, so I have this translated tapo, which I translate austerity. I'm going to explain all of these terms in a moment. Then brahmacharya is what we translate the spiritual life or the holy life. Then arya sachana dasanang. Dasanang, again, is seeing. 
And this is the seeing of the noble truths, the four noble truths. Then Nibbana, of course, is Nirvana, Nibbana. Satchikirya, Satchikirya means realization. So this is the realization of Nibbana. This is the highest or ultimate blessing. Okay, first, let's take the word tapo. This is a word that was widespread in the Indian ascetic culture of, at the time of the Buddha. And it continues, even, it's used even today in Indian contemplative culture. And the word tapo, it comes from the verbal root means tapati is to burn or to shine. And the practice of tapas goes back in India to time immemorial as sort of the foundation of the ascetic life, whereby it was believed that by undertaking various austerities, ascetic practices, by which one is mortifying the body, one is building up the capacity for super mundane, transcendent realization. Now the idea of tapas, some of like the typical practices that constitute tapas in the mainstream Indian way of understanding would be like undergoing long fasts or subsisting on extremely small quantities of food, going naked, exposing one's body to the, during the middle of the day in the hot season to the heat of the sun. Like one of the practices is called the five-fold fire practice. So you light fires to the north, east, south, and west. And the fifth fire is the heat of the sun midday and one exposes the body to the extreme heat. In the cold season, going for dips in the river, um, sleeping on beds of thorns. So these are extreme ascetic practices. They're not undertaken as a form of penance, so we shouldn't understand them by the model of Christian, medieval Christian practices, where why one is tormenting the body as punishment for the original sin or for one's other sins. But rather the idea here is that by undertaking these extreme ascetic practices, one is building up a power or force of strength in the mind that will enable the mind to reach some stage of spiritual realization and also to acquire the various psychic and supernormal powers. Even now in India today, there are ascetics who practice in this way. Now the Buddha took over this word tapas from the Indian, contemporary Indian tradition, but gave it a different meaning, or gave it a different interpretation. So he interpreted tapas as right effort, because what underlies these ascetic practices is intense willpower, 
the will to endure hardship and difficulty. But the Buddha uses tapas to mean the will to endure hardship in the training and cultivation of the mind. So the way the Buddha interprets tapas, it comes to mean the four right efforts. So this is the desire to prevent the arising of unarisen, unwholesome mental states, to abandon the desire to abandon, or the effort to abandon arisen, unwholesome states, the desire to the desire for the arising of unarisen wholesome states and the desire for the persistence and fulfillment of arisen wholesome mental states. If you know the Satipatthana Sutta, we get part of the formula, the repeated formula in the Satipatthana Sutta, the monk dwells ardent, diligent, uh, ardent, clearly comprehending and mindful. So the word that's translated ardent here is atapi, which you can see comes from the same verbal root, tap. So it connects this ardent endeavor, this vigorous energetic application, that sort of traces it back, we could trace it back to the Indian idea of tapas. But like so many other Indian ideas, reinterpreted by the Buddha. So the Buddha says that one should avoid the extreme of self-mortification because that is painful and not the way of the noble ones and not beneficial. But instead, one uses that same determination, that same resolution of the mind, not to torment the body and create hardship, but to train the mind. So this is tapas, so it would be ardent, diligent effort, especially in the cultivation of mental purification. Okay, then we come to the next term here. This is brahmacharya. So the word Brahma in India was the name for the god Brahma, but more generally it suggested the holy power, the divine power, which was seen as the kind of sustaining holy power of the universe. And then the way of conduct that is supposed to lead to the divine that leads to the state of holiness, that leads to spiritual fulfillment is brahmacharya. So the word brahmacharya has two nuances, at least two nuances. One, in a narrower sense, is celibacy. 
So it's believed that when one adopts the celibate lifestyle, either permanently in the way that a monk or nun will do, or when one goes on retreat, a long-term retreat, then one takes, instead of taking the precept of avoiding misconduct in regard to sensual pleasures, one takes the precept of observing brahmacharya, complete abstinence from all sexual activity. So this is the practice which is considered to be a way of fulfilling divinity or holiness within oneself. So that is the narrow meaning of brahmacharya. Then the broader meaning that the Buddha gives to it is the spiritual life in its entirety. And sometimes it's identified more analytically with the Noble Eightfold Path. And so... Here we have a sutta in which a monk named Buddha comes to Venerable Ananda and says, the brahmacharya, the brahmacharya, that expression is used, friend Ananda, what is the brahmacharya, the spiritual life, and what is the final goal of of the spiritual life. Then Ananda says, the spiritual life is the Noble Eightfold Path. That's right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Then the final goal of the brahmacharya, of the spiritual life, is the destruction of lust, destruction of hatred, the destruction of delusion. Okay, so let us see, I mean, to give, to take the Noble Eightfold Path then becomes the theme for like a whole retreat in itself. But let's see very concisely how brahmacharya, is the sense of the Noble Eightfold Path, culminates in the next mangala or blessing of this, in, in this verse, which is the seeing of the Noble Truths seeing of the Four Noble Truths. Okay, so backing up. One starts out on the Noble Eightfold Path. (coughs) With right view, which is explained in the suttas in this case as the conceptual understanding of the Four Noble Truths. So one has some intellectual or conceptual understanding of the Four Noble Truths, which gives us a kind of picture of the map, an overview of of the terrain to be crossed through the practice of the path, the starting point, the road to be taken, and the end point, the goal. Then... From right view, one forms the right intentions, which is explained as the intention of renunciation, the intention of goodwill or benevolence, the intention of harmlessness. 
then from there one takes up the ethical, the three ethical components of the path, right speech, right action, right livelihood. And these form the foundation for the meditative practice, which largely involves the interplay of right effort and right mindfulness. So the effort to remove the obstructions of the mind, the unwholesome states, right mindful and to develop the wholesome states of mind. And here, particularly the wholesome states to be developed are the four foundations of mindfulness. And as these are practiced together, eventually they'll culminate in some degree of right concentration, samasamadhi. I'm not going to get into the big question here, what degree of samadhi is necessary to get into insight? I mean, there are leading meditation masters who have different opinions about this. So I'm not the one to adjudicate, adjudicate that particular difference of opinion. But let us say, certainly through the practice of right effort and right mindfulness, one reaches a certain degree of samadhi or concentration sufficient to begin contemplating the factors of body and mind or the five aggregates in order to develop insight. And so one takes as the domain of contemplation the five aggregates of physical form, feeling, perception, volitional activities, and consciousness, and one starts to contemplate them and to see them with the concentrated, alert, clear mind, the unified, focused mind, one starts to see them first in terms of their, generally going in this sequence, in terms of their impermanence, that all of these factors arise and pass away, arise and pass away. So with this, the mark of impermanence is becoming manifest. Okay, from the fact that these are impermanent, that all of these factors are impermanent, then one comes to see that they are dukkha. And dukkha here, though in certain contexts we would translate it as suffering, but here it doesn't mean that everything in the five aggregates is actual suffering. But rather, dukkha here means, or it has the sense that everything within the five aggregates is in some way, I would say, defective, unsatisfactory, or flawed. Flawed because these things being impermanent, they're not able to serve as a solid, secure basis for enduring happiness. And the more we cling to them, and build our hopes and expectations upon these five aggregates, then when they change and perish, then our hopes and expectations are dashed to pieces and we meet with actual suffering. But even when we are in a fairly stable condition, enjoying life, but one sees that these still the factors of body and mind are unsatisfactory. And then from the insight into impermanence and dukkha, one comes to the insight 
the understanding that these five aggregates are anatta, that they are not to be taken as a substantial self, that there's no sort of subject, but like a permanent, enduring, persisting subject behind the various experiences that we undergo. A, A permanent subject who is the seer of sights, the thinker of thoughts, the subject of the feelings, the agent behind our actions. But what we usually refer to as I and me or myself is this combination of or this collaborative union of the five aggregates. And so when one looks at the aggregates individually, one sees that they are not the self themselves and not to be taken as the possession of the self. So one now sees the five aggregates as being impermanent, dukkha, unsatisfactory, not self. And then from there, the texts usually expand this to say that one should take them to be not mine, not I, not my self. Okay, this insight into the three characteristics initially emerges sequentially. Some people might go directly to dukkha, some directly to anatta, but the usual pattern is to proceed from impermanence to dukkha to anatta. And then as the insight becomes deeper and deeper, one starts to see these three characteristics of all conditioned phenomena, internal and external, at subtler and subtler levels, till the mark of impermanence is emerging to seeing that the factors of the body are just arising and breaking up at incredible speed, just like almost at a quantum level, things just arising and passing, arising and passing. And for this reason, the sense of dukkha the disenchantment with this experience of body and mind becomes stronger. And then the sense of de-identification becomes stronger. But all the time one is observing and contemplating consistently in the state of insight concentration, the five aggregates. Okay, now when all of the spiritual faculties now become strong and mature, at a certain point, the mind turns away from all conditioned phenomena and just for one moment, it sort of opens up to something that lies outside the range of all conditioned phenomena. This is the Asankata Datu, the unconditioned state, the unconditioned element, which is Nibbana. So this is experience, it's called the breakthrough to the Dharma, whereby the mind emerges from all conditioned phenomena and just momentarily touches or experiences that which is without arising, without decay without perishing. That is the deathless Nibbana. 
And when that breakthrough to the Dharma, a breakthrough to the Dharma takes place, the opening of the eye of Dharma, when one sees Nibbana, then one, by way of function, it said, one can see all four noble truths. Now, usually in the sort of common way of presenting what is Buddhism, like what the Buddha taught, Walpul Rahula's famous book, sort of the basis is, oh, it's very elementary to understand Buddhism, it's the Four Noble Truths. But actually, the real seeing of the Four Noble Truths transforms a person from, until one gets that direct seeing of the Four Noble Truths, through the seeing of Nibbana, we are what are called worldlings, (laughs) or ordinary people. But when that breakthrough to the Dharma takes place, then one enters the stream of the Dharma. One becomes a stream enterer, one who is now irreversible in progress. One can never fall away, can never turn back, because one has now seen the truth of the Dharma. One has seen the unconditioned element, seen Nibbana, So one knows this is what the Buddha saw. And then one, from that standpoint, one can look back at these five aggregates, the experience of bodily and mental experience, and see this is really dukkha, unsatisfactory. And one sees that it's this craving and ignorance working together that sustain this ongoing process of this continuity of body and mind from one life to another, that this ignorance and craving are the hidden dynamism at the base of samsara, the cycle of birth and death. And now one has experienced, even momentarily, the complete cessation of dukkha, which is nibbana, and one knows the Noble Eightfold Path is the way to the ultimate liberation, to the realization of Nibbana. So now one has seen the Four Noble Truths. Up to that point, you know, as we study the text, discuss the text, practice our daily meditation, we could say that we are gaining some understanding of the Four Noble Truths. We are gaining some taste of the Four Noble Truths or taste of understanding the Four Noble Truths. But it's only when one makes that breakthrough that one can say one has seen the Four Noble Truths. And that becomes the blessing because one is now irreversibly on the way to final liberation. Maybe we should take, say, a 10-minute break, then we'll come back for the last session. (laughs) Okay, so I've covered, just to see what I've covered. Okay, so, so far in this verse, I've covered tapo, austerity, the spiritual life, the seeing of the noble truths. Then when we come back, then we continue with the realization of Nibbana, and then come to the final full verse of the sutta. 303, 304 here. 
Um, I'm losing my ability to think clearly. <laughs> okay, 3.15, okay. <laughs>